Okay, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you're visiting, there are sermon notes. I'm really, really excited to come this morning to say to you, we're in a new chapter. We're in a new section of scripture today. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it's a new focus. And the focus is doing God's business God's way. Your sermon note says at the top of it, the importance of doing things God's way. You're going to see this through all of chapter 11. We were talking over the past several months about Christian liberty. The Apostle Paul is now making a transition. <coughs> He's now working to come into a new subject matter, and we're going to deal with prophets, we're going to deal with doctrine, we're going to deal with communion, but we're mainly going to be dealing with verses 1 to 16 in this first section, and it's going to deal with head coverings, and it's a passage that's often considered really confusing. It's going to deal with hair length. And people think, you know, all of this is cultural. I'm going to tell you, many churches won't teach this passage because it gets really controversial. And I'm going to show you, I think, really how you use the grammatical historical method. It becomes an issue where it doesn't have to become so confusing. I really think that this passage where people say it's all cultural, it isn't cultural, um, th- Some churches will read this and and demand that women wear hats to church. I don't think it's mandating that, so I'm trying to make that really clear right from the top. Um, But I do think it is talking about wearing some type of head covering when you're a prophet, and that will be the difference. And I'm going to show you why it's talking about specifically prophets, and and that's why a lot of people make mistakes. Um, It's not saying that women have to wear hats to prayer meeting or or the way they, they, they pray. So hopefully we'll clear all of that up over the next few weeks, and um, I wrote this. I am clear. This is not cultural. This is speaking of literal head coverings or hats, but we will not end up with women wearing hats to church or prayer meetings. Um, Now a woman can wear a hat if she wants to, but not because of this passage, because this is not teaching about everyday wearing hats for women. I'm excited to teach this passage because this really shows the impact of hard work in Bible study. Okay, and, and, and I'm hoping you'll see that. Again, some people will teach this passage is only cultural, and I'm going to show you why that's really foolish. All right, so let's just read verses 1 to 16. It says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Now, I, I praise you because, of, uh, because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the, and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Verse 7, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. 
But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. And so I don't want us to lose the picture. What this is talking about is we need to do God's business God's way. We all need to do things God's way. Um, that is the key point. And so we've transitioned into this concept of liberty, from liberty into this concept of how you do things God's way. Sadly, even a lot of commentaries, Bible teachers, have taken verse 1 as the end of the liberty section. And, and I don't think that's correct. Um, one of the ways I can show it to you is, I, I kept your notes really simple. When we come back in two weeks to this, because we have Mother's Day next week, I am going to show you a lot of detail because I think it's important and maybe put a supplement in the bulletin. But I just want you to see, there's a thing in scripture that's called a chiastic structure where it's a literary form. And we know that a lot of the, the um, Jewish writers used it. And I truly believe it's used here where you, you, you start with one point, you might make all your other points, you come to your main point and then you go back and you reverse all your points in reverse order, and then you come back to the last point. Look at just as a big picture in verse 1 and 2. If you see it in your notes, it says, see the importance of practicing God's word. Follow Paul. But now when you come down to verse 16, it's the exact same point. See the importance of practicing God's word, but now the church should do nothing less. Okay? So it's going to be interesting, I think, as we recognize that God, I think, is keeping these two sections together, okay? And so the, the, the whole point is he's trying to say, follow me. Do these practices. Um, one of the best books out there is this book on this. If you ever want to really get challenged, Dr. Zemek, who was my seminary professor and now is leading a seminary down in Florida, wrote this book, Doing God's Business, God's Way, A Biblical Theology of Ministry. I think you can get it on Amazon um, right now. This is a highly recommended book. Uh, and and this, is, <laughs> this is, the book is about this, but this is what this text is about, okay? And what, what we need to recognize and we need to understand is when we deal with church, we cannot think that God leaves it up to us on how things are structured. Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 is a verse that drives a lot of what we do here, and, and it's a good remembrance. And the Apostle Paul is giving instructions in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and, and Titus. These are called the pastoral epistles on how the church is to be run. And he gives this great verse, verse 15. I'll start reading verse 14. He says, Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, he says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to, to you long, before long, okay? But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, okay? Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We are to be God's church, God's family, and God has a specific way on how he wants things done. It is not arbitrary, and it's critical that we understand this. And I, I came up with four <coughs> examples. I, I want you to see this. I, the mainline evangelical church, I, I know this because I've lived this over the last 30 years, has basically said, we're, we're, we're going to do things our own way. And, and number one is with the gospel. 
Um, in the past 30 years, we have churches say that it doesn't matter how we witness to the lost. You, you'll hear things talk about, you know, you know, witness to people, and if necessary, use words. Okay, like, you know, we make our church services seeker-friendly as, God, as if God never addressed the issue. We went through this study, and I'm not going to take you back there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2 are very clear. We need to present the word of God. We need to go through the, what I call the five topics of the gospel, man's sin, person of Christ, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, by its faith alone. We cannot conduct church as seeker-service-oriented churches. It is, it is wrong, and yet... You know, we see in the Chicagoland area a church that has now created an entire denomination, and churches spring up overnight when they start this methodology. And it is not doing God's business God's way. And if anybody wants to challenge or think more about this subject, I've got a book in my office that analyzed 20 years ago that church where the majority of people, I think it was like 80% of the people at, at a church that had 20,000 people in it, are not professing to be believers. And, and yet, they call themselves a church. And, and it does, it's done great damage to the evangelical church, not doing God's business God's way. Then you've got church government. I've dealt with so many people who have told me over the years, over and over, God never stated how church government is to be structured. You can have either pastors or elders or just deacons, and, and anyone could be a leader. I mean, you know, that is just not true. The Bible is very clear on elders, deacons, and the form of government in which we have. We cannot say, you know, where we struggle even as a church today, where we'll sometimes, we struggle with the idea that, you know, we're, you know, we're in a communist society, maybe we would have more of a dictatorship, and you'd say, oh, you have a one, you know, pastor ruler. That's just not biblical. That's not from the Bible. Neither is the sense of a full democracy. Because you live in a democratic country. You don't force it. This is God's church. And God did say, and he did teach um, how he wanted things done. Great book on this. It just comes to mind. It's called Biblical Eldership by Alexander Strzok. Highly recommend it. Then you go into the idea, too, of male leadership. I mean, we are struggling with this across the board. That I, I mean, I'm dealing with somebody... Um, through emails, you know, just the, the horrible patriarchal structure that's been forced on the church, and women can't preach like men, and yet the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that I don't want a woman teaching men, and, and yet, you know, we have large institutions, large institutions in our area saying, oh, that's, you know, the only reason the, the Apostle Paul said that is because it's cultural. Now it's no longer cultural for a woman to teach a man. We, we live in a free society. I got to tell you, that's absolute hooey. I mean, you, you cannot, you cannot start turning scripture on its head, and yet the evangelical church has done just that. And then you've got this tub subject matter. You've got the idea of hermeneutics. And this is where, I gotta tell you, the idea is people think that how we interpret the Bible, hermeneutics is the, is, are the principles in which we, we read the scriptures. And some people think you could take any form. You can take a um, allegorical. You could take some type of uh, mystical, you know, or you can take... Um, <laughs> you can take a grammatical, historical, theological approach and end up reformed. 
Let me tell you, that is not biblical. The Bible teaches, and a great book that I would, the Bible teaches the grammatical historical method is the way to interpret it. And so you don't end up with some of these other views. And a lot of people just are, will not, will not put forth a study. And this is what I've shared with you over and over and over, how um, I'm amazed churches do not tell people honestly what is the method of interpretation we use. I've told you clearly, we use a grammatical historical approach. We use it because this is what the Bible teaches. And if you would like to look more into that, Dr. Robert Thomas wrote a book called Evangelical Hermeneutics. And hopefully you won't end up with a grammatical historical theological and end up being reformed and holding some of the views that they hold. And you don't hold a a view where all of a sudden you end up and say, it really doesn't matter. You know, end times, we can't ever define it. I've told you, and I share with you, every time I read books on end times, if the people are honest who write them, they'll say, we're not going to use a grammatical historical approach. When we come to the book of Revelation, we're going to take a hermeneutic called an apostolic, uh, apocalyptic hermeneutic. And you say, where in the world do you get that? Because they just make it up. And you guys hear, you know, so-and-so church, you know, your neighbor goes to a church and, and they, they don't believe in a pre-trip rapture and they don't believe in um, pre-millennial kingdom. And, they, and you wonder, like, well, what's wrong with us? Why is our church so different? And the reality of it is, is because their pastor, their leaders, whoever's teaching them, has arbitrarily decided that they're not going to use the right hermeneutic. A hermeneutic that the Bible teaches, because the Bible teaches how to even interpret itself. And so, you know, again, I get very passionate about this because God has worked on all of this for us on how to do God's business God's way. And so I got this quote from Gil Rue, and I never put his picture up, okay? Um, he, he was the pastor when I was in Lincoln, Nebraska, and a lot of his material we have. He gave this quote, and I want to read this to you. Um, it basically is this. Sometimes the church is guilty of fighting over things that are not biblical doctrines and biblical truths. That's true. You know, like what color of carpet should we have? What are, you know, you know should be on the radio, should be on TV, you know, those things aren't how you present the gospel, the issues. We're talking about whether you give words or whether you give just actions. So sometimes the church is guilty of fighting over things that are not biblical doctrines and biblical truths. They fight over insignificant matters that the Bible doesn't specifically address. That is sin. It is sad. It's a denial of the unity and oneness that the Spirit has produced in the family of God. But sometimes that statement, we should stop fighting, is a way of saying, stop criticizing us for our bad doctrine. It's another way of saying, allow us to continue to promote false doctrine, and don't you dare criti- don't you criticize us for it. These are serious matters. They have to do with the manifestation of God's character and God's work in our lives. Okay? So, with that understanding, fill in the blank. See the importance of practicing God's word. We want you to follow Paul. Look at this. Look at verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything. Hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. In these verses, Paul is setting the table for the new chapter. And we're going to get into how prophecy is used in chapter, in verses 3 to 15. Then how division is handled after that. And then how communion is, is performed. And these are all important instructions. But what Paul wants us to understand is we need to follow his example. We must practice God's word and we must follow Paul. Paul is an apostle. 
An apostle was a key position in the church. And what I want you to understand, apostles and prophets were unique. (coughs) Okay, turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And it's, again, important that we understand this. In Ephesians chapter 2, the book of Ephesians is a book that has six chapters. It deals with the incredible um, blessings and practice of the church. And in the, the position of the church... all the blessings we have, excuse me, in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, he's talking about the unity, how Jews and Gentiles have been broken down, and now we're together. And as you come into chapter 2, the Apostle Paul in verse 19 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, because Gentiles were strangers and aliens to God's promises, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The idea of apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple unto the Lord, for whom you are being built together into a dwelling uh, of, the, in, of God in the spirit. Now listen, if you have a foundation, this is why it's the base of the church. And, and historically, you know, the question is, is we, we have been, we're not going to take time now to show you, but apostles are no longer on the scene we know in the book of hebrews they were already talking about as if apostles had gone by the time the book of hebrews was written what i want you to also understand is that on the same line that's why prophets aren't around because prophets are the proclamation of god's word and uh, just like apostles are unique prophets were unique hence why this passage that we're going to go back to and study in first corinthians 11 is something that that is why it's so isolated it's a passage it's talking about head coverings and it's the only place in scripture that talks about it and if if it was so prevalent and so much needed about with like especially with prayer you would see it everywhere but we're talking about the uniqueness of apostles and prophets But if you go back and look at the idea then, um, when we look at this idea as an apostle, Paul had the authority to teach doctrine like a prophet did too. And when Paul says, follow me, then, then you need to do just that. You have to look at him and mimic him and ape him because he had the authority, all right? And when I look at this subject, um, he had the ability to say, live like me, okay? Now, listen to me, and I, and I say this humbly to the extent, to, there's only a certain extent to which I can say, follow me, look at my example as Pastor Mike, because I am not an apostle, and I, I can't declare truth in the sense of declare new truth like the apostle Paul did, Okay? So there were limits even to the apostle Paul's discipleship. He didn't take 12 disciples like Jesus because he wasn't sovereign. What he did was he, we're going to get into chapters 12, 13, and 14, how the church is structured as a church body, and we all work to disciple one another. And I encourage you to come back for that. But what we need to recognize, what we need to recognize here is that Paul had the authority for us to say, look at my life. Follow me. Now, let's get into this. This word imitator is very important. You see where he says, be imitators of me? What did we get from this? First of all, it's a present tense command to be. As Paul tells the church at Corinth, follow me. This is ongoing. 
This isn't just like a one-time act. This is an ongoing thing. So he give, gives this instruction and then comes back in a month and they say, well, we did it one time, Paul. We're not doing it now. No, this is like keep on doing this. So now we get our word mimic from this. You know, someone says, hey, you're, you're mimicking them. You're aping them. Um, th- that's the idea here, okay? The idea is that we're mimicking them. And we get the idea that Paul didn't live with Jesus, nor do we live with Paul either in our day. But we can know of Paul how? Through the scriptures. When we study the Apostle Paul's life in the book of Acts, when we see the things that he's written in Ephesians or 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and he brings up different aspects of his life, then we can say, oh my goodness, we know how Paul lived. And we know how Jesus lived because we get the picture in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you learn to see these kind of qualities. From Paul's life, we learned how he applied the word of God. We see how he relentlessly worked, how he relentlessly witnessed, how he relentlessly gave up of himself, how he acted like, how he acted like Jesus. And, and that's what I want you to understand, is that the apostle Paul, we could say, well, I'm not living with Paul now. Corinth was 2,000 years ago. This is why you need to read your Bibles. You have to look at how Paul lived, and you have to start thinking to yourself, my goodness, how did he take the word of God and put it into his own life? How did he relentlessly sacrifice? How did he relentlessly witness? How did he relentlessly go? And you say, you know, Paul, there's limits. And then Paul says, no, look at my life. Jesus gave it all. I want you to give it all. I want you to pour out your life. And so from Paul's life, we learned all of this stuff. And so, be imitators of me, because he followed Jesus. Look at verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. He recognized what Jesus gave. He recognized how Jesus lived. And this is the challenge for all of you. And, and my hope is that you see this. And, and you're constantly reading the scriptures. And you're learning about Paul's life. And you're learning about how, the, the doctrines that he gave. I'm telling you, you will never regret it the more you live like Paul. As you go forward into this, you you see this line here. Now, look at verse 2. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything. So, obviously, you know, we look at the church at Corinth, and we look at them, and we sometimes say, wow, there's a lot of problems, and there's a lot of difficulties there. You know, Paul has been writing and talking about so many different issues, and blah, 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 that he's been going through. Maybe he must have always been critical of them. But he recognized the general tenor of this church was that they were willing to do what he said. That this was the general concept. So, that's why he could say, I praise you in everything, and you hold firmly and meaning they were doing these things. They, there was like a sense of commitment to it. But look at what he says to the traditions and when, uh, that I had delivered to you. And this is where all of a sudden you say, well, wait a second. I thought traditions were a bad thing. And I wanted to put this up on the screen so you saw this. First of all, when we recognize traditions could be good or bad, just like the word lust you know, the idea of lust, we always think of it with a negative connotation. But you could be passionate for something. Lust can be a passion. I can have a passion for serving God. I can have that lust for serving God. So the word lust, depending upon the context, can like mean a, a positive passion. Or if it was a negative thing, if I was like looking at pornography, that could be a bad thing. Okay? So the word traditions is a word that you have to recognize 
based upon good Bible study, good word study, could be used good or bad. We recognize today, and this is what we recognize as a Protestant church, I don't even say Protestant, as a Bible church, that we're aware of today of the position of the Catholic church. And if you're unaware, maybe if someone here is a Catholic, you can talk to me more about this afterwards, but it's something that I have gotten from Catholic literature. I've talked to Catholic nuns about this. Um, uh, the idea is that the Catholic church official position is that the Bible and tradition are equal and are on the same plane. But when the tradition contradicts the Bible, like priests are staying single, okay? Today, it's, it's a Catholic tradition that's changing around the 12th century that priests stay single. Even though the Bible in 1 Timothy 4 says that's a sin, the Catholic Church will say tradition outrules what the scriptures say. And that is not biblical, okay? And so that's why when often I talk to Catholic people, they'll tell me, you know, the problem with you is that you hold the Bible as, a, as your authority. You hold the Bible as something that is higher than our tradition. Well, that's because in that case, there are traditions that are wrong, and we need to recognize it. And as we go into the scripture, I want to look at you that it's, this is something that you could easily have missed. Here's three passages that talk about traditions. Each one of them are going to be qualified as not traditions of God, but traditions of men. Look over at Colossians 2.8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. The Apostle Paul is talking about the sufficiency of Christ in the book of Colossians. And when he comes to verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. Okay, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. It's the tradition of men that, that is not good, where they come up with their rules and what they think should be thought of. This is a problem. So absolutely, tradition in this case is not good. And then you go over to Galatians 1.14. Um, Galatians, Ephesians. So Galatians chapter 1, a book that is talking about... Um, our spirit walk and, and how salvation is clearly by faith alone. And um, in Galatians 1.14, um, the Apostle Paul is giving his background, his own history, okay? And a great story for you to know when we were saying, Paul says, be an imitator of me. Here's a great section in verses 11 through 24. It talks about his own background. But when he goes in verse 14, he says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Not not biblical traditions, but my ancestral, which was the Jewish, you know, where they had made up a bunch of rules and regulations that weren't tied to the Bible. They weren't tied even to the Old Testament law in in the sense that they were directly from the law. They, They added to them. And so the Apostle Paul, when he gets saved, breaks away from those traditions. So those traditions aren't good. And then Matthew chapter 15, verse 2. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15, verse 2. You see, Jesus himself comes down on the Jewish leaders because of those traditions that the Apostle Paul was of himself also following. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 2, Jesus says this. He says, why do, you, why do you, his disciples were challenging them. He says, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? 
okay? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Well, that was a rule that the Jewish elders had made, but it wasn't something that, that was mandated, and so Jesus rebukes them and gives them a right understanding. And so those traditions were all improper. But yet we see also in Scripture there are traditions that are good, okay? And, and I want you just to walk through with this. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 23, you see that communion was a delivered practice. Remember, the Apostle Paul said in verse 1, or verse 2, Holy, hold firm to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And here we see things like in verse 23, for the Apostle Paul, the, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread. And so how do we do communion? It was delivered to us. We got a practice that was given to us. And then we go over to 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and we see that the gospel was delivered to us. We didn't come up with that gospel. It's what the Apostle Paul is affirming in chapter 1 of Galatians. But 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We didn't come up with the gospel. It was delivered to us. And then you come over to these two passages, and there's going to be a very important in 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, if you'll turn there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, the apostle, the apostle Paul is giving instructions to the church at Thessalonica, and he says this, um, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to, to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or letter by us. Now, wait a second. If traditions were always bad... <clears throat> then why in the world is he saying hold fast to traditions or, or obey these traditions? Because they were taught by us, the apostles, the people who had the authority to say these were the practices that you need to hold to. And then when you go over to verse 6 of chapter 3, same book, he says in verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition you receive from us. Because the tradition that we had on how you live is the standard and so there is a standard in in this case tradition was good <clears throat> and then lastly just so you even get this go over one other book in first thessalonians chapter two you see when the apostle paul taught because he was an apostle his words were the equivalent of the word of god he knew he was giving the bible first Thessalonians 2, verse 13, he says, For this reason we, are constantly thank, we all constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in those who believe. You know, Paul didn't go around handing out Gideon Bibles. He didn't come out and say, here, i got to give a Bible. When he taught, he knew what he was giving was the Bible. They didn't have a collected Bible at this time. And so <coughs> what he's trying to say is what you need to recognize and how this applies for us today is that the traditions we have is the word of God. You need to follow this. This is what you need to follow. And now he goes into an example, an example that doesn't have to be so challenging, doesn't have to end up with all kinds of confusion. It deals with this. It understands the reasons behind how a prophet functions. And, and like I said, this is, this, is, 
this is really important that we get this, that we are not discussing normal prayer, prayer meetings, everyday life, normal hat wear for church, practices which were cultural, okay? He's definitely, as we go through this, what you see is I think a lot of pastors that they just don't want to deal with us. And so we're just going to say this is cultural. And sadly, even some very good um, Bible teachers that I know and I've studied under will just blow this off. But this is what I want to challenge you. If anybody really wants to look into this and say, well, no, I really believe, like, especially that this is cultural, is when, when you study history, there's very little written about the, Corinth, the church at Corinth and their actual cultural practices. One person that becomes the main source for coming up with this was all cultural basically says that he thought this practice was cultural, that a woman that, that didn't wear a head covering would look like a prostitute, would look like a, like a, 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 a whorish woman, and he says, but in reality, we really don't know. But then all these other commentators quote him. And they just quote like the first part. So that you have some pretty distinguished Bible teachers who are quoting it. says, well, we have church history and we know this was cultural. But I'm going to show you today, even in the context, it doesn't make sense. And I'm also, so what I'm clearly telling you is the historical information is just not there. And it's, it's one of the saddest um, scholarly approaches that have gone wrong with people who, who, who study the Bible, okay? So what I want you to understand, um, and this is what I was getting at what here, is it's not cultural because <laughs> this is my wife shopping. If no head covering made a woman look like a prostitute in Paul's day while prophesying, why would it be okay to not wear one while shopping, for example, okay? So look at verse 6, just as an example, because we're going to get more into this in a couple of weeks. But look, it says in verse 6, For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also cover, cut her head off, cut, cut her hair off, not her head, that wouldn't be good. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Because the thought was that a, a shaved head woman at that time this is what they said culturally, was the fact that, was that they would show themselves to be a prostitute. But I'm going to tell you that a shaved-haired, shaved woman, a bald woman, we're not talking someone who's going through cancer treatment or anything like that, but we're talking about somebody that's just saying, I don't care about how I look, is offensive to God because God is going to make it very clear that men and women are to look different. And so, but think about this. So if the Apostle Paul says, but if a woman doesn't cover her head, we're talking about anytime she's praying or anytime she's in church, then let her cut her head off, cut, cut, her, cut, you know, cut her hair off, then, then my goodness, it doesn't make sense because if she goes out shopping and she doesn't have a, hair, hair, a head covering, what does she look like? She looks like a prostitute. 
then you would see that he would be saying, my goodness, a woman couldn't go shopping without a head covering. She couldn't walk down the street. She couldn't work in her own backyard. Because if she didn't have her head covered, she would always look like a prostitute. You couldn't just say while she was just praying in church, oh, you know, here comes Miss Jill and she's going to pray for us this morning and she's got her head covered, but then she goes about to the store and she doesn't have her head covered and everybody thinks she's a prostitute. You wouldn't, that wouldn't fly. Even in the very passage, it doesn't make sense that it's cultural. So that argument just really falls flat. And the other thing I wanted you to do is this. This is a challenge, okay? Here's something I would ask you to do. Where you go through this passage, and this is what I want you over the next few weeks to ponder this so that you can understand. If you were going to make a point that you wanted to always be true, you would make it universal. If C marks the fact that it's cultural or question mark, you don't really know, okay, what it is. Um, it could be cultural, it could be universal, then, then it becomes unclear, right? If you go through and you say, I'm going to put a marker, and I'd ask you, if you got your Bibles, and this is why I love for you to have Bibles and not just have cell phones, okay, just a side note, but if you can make little notes in your Bibles and you work through and you go like verse 4, every man who has his head, ha- has something on his head or is has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Well, I can't really say that's cultural or, or universal, so I'm just going to put a marker there. I'm going to say in verse 4, question mark. I go down to verse 5, and, I, and I'll, it's going to be the same thing. Jump down to verse 6. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. I'm not sure if that is saying something universal or cultural. It could be cultural, okay, for those who are fighting for the cultural argument. But once I get down to verse 7, look at this. Verse 7, for a man not ought to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. Being the image and glory of God is not something that's cultural. It's universal. It's always applicable. All right? Universals. Who put a U by verse 7? Verse 8, for man does not originate from the woman, but woman from man. That is not something cultural. That's not something that we have to decide. That is something that's going to be true in the year 2019. It's going to be true 100 years from today. And it was true back then. That's a universal truth. Verse 9, for indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. That's Genesis 2. That's universal. That was true 6,000 years ago. It's going to be true 6,000 years from today. Verse 10, therefore, man ought, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Well, when we come to verse 10, I, I think it's, it's going to be universal, but I, I'll put the question mark there. Because, okay, what are you talking about when we're dealing with this symbol for angels? But then you come to verse 11. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Again, totally a universal truth. Never does a man ever get to say, I don't need women. Women can never say, I don't need men. Verse 12, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Again, that's universal, all right? Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray for God, to God with head uncovered? Well, I'll give that. That's a question mark. You know, people say it's cultural, but again, think about it. Again, if we're talking specifically about, about a, a woman who's functioning as a prophet, then it would, this is why it's going to make so much more sense. Because think about it. 
if women having head coverings, coming to church or being in prayer meetings was the dictated practice of the early church and we should have all women all the time having head coverings, you would think it's that important. You would find it throughout the entire New Testament. But this is the only time this appears. Hence why I think we're just talking about a woman who functions as a prophet. But I regress. Verse 14. Verse 14. Does not even nature teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? Again, you might put that a question mark, but we'll go with universal. Because when he comes down to verse 15, but if a woman has long hair, it's a glory for her. For her hair is given to her as a head covering. So there you're getting these, I think, these universal truths. And so we'll get more into this as we go on. But if you just, you just take this simply, what is he saying He's, I think, trying to cut through no cultural thing, but he's giving a practice for a woman who functioned as a prophet before the whole church, of which the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And women were not apostles, but were they prophets? Absolutely they were. And we'll look at in two weeks examples of women who were prophets. And when they prophesied, you know what they normally did? They prayed. And so we'll find that. Here's the challenge. Are you doing God's business God's way? That's the thing. When you come back to this whole thing, because he's talking about the order, talking about the order of the church, order of families, order of how God wants things done. What we have to ask ourselves, let's not miss the forest for the trees. The trees, some of these other issues, whether this is cultural or not. But the bigger picture is, are we living biblically? And the challenge is, is when you read the scriptures, am I patient, not kind, not jealous, not bragging? Am I somebody that is sacrificing? Am I somebody that's serving? Am I somebody that is doing things God's way? As we get ready for communion, let me just take you to one passage. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and, and ask yourself, like if I would randomly pick up a book from the Apostle Paul, if I would randomly take the word of God and I'm going to start to read a text of scripture, And I knew my life, and right now, my hope is that the Holy Spirit will make it very clear to you, okay? How are you living? Let's just read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to the end of the chapter, because it's a passage about how I walk, and the walk is the pattern of your life. Ephesians chapter 4, he says, so this I say, the apostle Paul says, and I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over the sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I just pray that you are people that are doing God's business God's way. From a church organization, it's something we always want to do. I've always said, you know, somebody could come to me and say, like, anyone could come and say, why do you do what you do as a church? And I should be able to support it from the scriptures, not just say any old way. Then on my own practice, am I living this way? Am I living different than the way the world lives? And if you're not, and if you're here today and you're visiting, maybe the reason you don't is because you don't have Christ in you. Turn to Jesus Christ and believe. And for believers, it's critical that we continually conform our lives to his character. Let's pray. Father, I pray that when we look in the mirror, we see in the word of God a mirror that reflects you and it reflects us because we're walking and aligning more and more our lives with you. Father, we're not perfect. And as we come to communion, it's a good reminder for all of us where we need to confess and we need to get our lives more right with you. Help us, God, to be people who understand that you've used language and you use communication in the written word to instruct us. And there are difficult passages like we studied today, but then there are passages that really aren't difficult if we just take them for exactly what you meant and we don't force it into something we don't want to deal with. I pray, Father, that even though... And on top of that, on the clear passage about not lying, not using swear words, not using improper words, not being unforgiving people, being kind, very clear what you want us to be. And where we're falling short, God, make it clear to us. And help us as we even come now to this time of communion. In Christ's name, amen.